back. You're listening to NTT Science, where each episode we get to meet a different scientist and chat about what it is they do and why they do it. Usually, I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, but this week the tables have turned. I'm going to use that line. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The hat's on the other foot. The, the tables are twisted. <laughs> James is getting a taste of his own medicine tonight. Yes. So I'm Siobhan Dennison, and I'm going to be a host for this evening. Who are you talking to, Siobhan? I'm talking to James O'Hanlon, a biologist, gymnast, creator, <laughs> science communicator, various other things that we should be hopefully finding out about tonight. Sure. Let's do this. Well... Uh, so, I guess we begin with welcome. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for having here. me. <laughs> thanks for entrusting me with your, your podcast for the night. Um, so, James, you're, you're a behavioral ecologist. Yes. You're a biologist, but particularly you, you do the, the behavioral ecology thing. And to, to people who might not really know what that exactly entails, what, what, what is it that you do? What's your research? Essentially, what what is behavioral ecology? That's right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, funny, funny story. <laughs> Very first podcast I ever did with Institute Science was with a famous behavioral ecologist called Hannah Rowland, who kind of helped inspire this podcast because she did one for a while. It was called the behavior was it was called the Beepcast Behavioral Ecology oh, yeah, and Evolution yeah. Podcast. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'd open with, with that question, asking about her podcast and sort of saying for people that aren't familiar with the field, what is, what is behavioral ecology? And I, I realized then I didn't have very good interview skills because I totally threw her a curveball <laughs> and she just gave me a dirty look and went, um, okay, well, <laughs> and then started a story that began in the 1940s and went for 20 minutes giving the whole history of behavioral ecology and... <laughs> Got all night. <laughs> What's your specific field of behavioral ecology? Well, I do uh, insects and spiders and creepy crawly sort of stuff generally, and I guess I would describe uh, behavioral ecology as sort of sitting halfway on a spectrum between animal animal behavior and ecology. So. You know, there are types of animal behavior where you can get right into, I don't know, say the neurobiology of animals or, I don't know, teaching owls how to play chess or something like that. <laughs> but behavioral ecologists are specifically interested in behaviors that we see in the wild, behaviors that help animals survive by catching food, finding mates, avoiding predators, all that sort of stuff. And that's where it shifts towards ecology, which is our interactions with the natural environment and interactions between organisms and my specific field I guess started off as what we might call sensory ecology which again is another another buzzword we like to throw in there looking at animal senses and how they receive information be it uh, through vision or sound or things like that and how that information they get helps them survive but really, I'm just kind of interested in any sort of cool natural history story. If there's an animal doing a cool thing and we don't understand why or how it works, then 
I, I want to work on it pretty much, yeah. You have a tendency to go for the, the hard projects or the, <laughs> the things that no one's really looked at before and kind of, you know, beating the unbeaten track. <laughs> yes. So what you've done, your PhD was on orchid mantises, which yes. are a fascinating creature. Yes. Also quite a rare creature. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I think... I can sympathise with this having worked on threatened species myself. It's, it can be very frustrating when you work on a species that's kind of hard to find and mm-hmm. hard to come across. But what is it about orchid mantises that these are a great example of sensory ecology, right? Yeah. And but specifically, yeah, why why these guys? What was it that drew you to them? Kind of just what you said that nobody had ever done it before. Um, I think that was really instilled in me by my early mentors that uh, lots of them we've spoken to on the podcast that really value uh, exploration of unique study systems and things that nobody's ever done before. And there's probably an element of me that is like that as well. I've, I've always been... I never wanted to do things that other people were doing, you know. I never wanted to play cricket and rugby in school because everybody played cricket and rugby. <laughs> and I'm sure it would have been a you know, great time. But I just sort of looked at that and went, ah, what's the point? I'm going to do something different. Uh, and that's really come into my professional career a bit when I saw this lab group, you know, the Behavioral Ecology Research Group at Macquarie Uni that I started volunteering with as an undergrad, and I saw that they had that desire to study things that had never been studied before and to ask questions that hadn't been asked before. It's probably no surprise that I ended up doing my postgraduate research with them. And the Orchid Manda stuff came about when I was uh, I was doing my master's in that research group on, again, another group of praying mantises that only one person had really ever studied before, and that was my supervisor. And so I was reading up on all these different types of praying mantises and what they do, and and pretty much every time you Google praying mantises, a picture of an orchid mantis is going to come up, and you start to hear about this creature that almost has a mythological reputation. It's this amazing mantis that looks more like a flower and is so flower-like that it lures in other insects as prey. And I thought, that's amazing, I want to read more about this animal. And so I went searching for the papers showing that it mimics a flower and lures in insects, and it turns out they didn't exist. It turns out this was really just a, an urban myth, essentially. Assumption. Yeah, and straight away that made me go, right, I'm going to do that. That looks like fun. <laughs> was, it, was it just assumed that they, they're camouflaged amongst flowers, or that they lure them in before you went on Both, journey. really. I mean, nobody had ever really gone that specific into it. It had just been talked about, you know, in general terms. It's all over popular science mags and even evolutionary biology textbooks always have it as, a, as an example of mimicry or camouflage or something like that. But because nobody had ever studied it, we didn't know if... What, was a useful way of camouflaging from predators. We didn't know if it was a way of camouflaging from prey and ambushing them, or if it actually was a true case of mimicry where other animals think it's a real flower. So it was really this 
you know, it was an open book waiting to be written. And I thought, it, I thought at first it was the perfect PhD project to sink my teeth into because it had all those cool uh, exploratory aspects to it. It was something that had never been done before. It was a cool charismatic animal and involved trudging around the rainforest of Southeast Asia. And I really wanted to do that. And so, yeah, I approached uh, Mariella Herberstein and to see if she would support me putting in an application to do a PhD in it. And she just said, yep, great, do it. Excellent. <laughs> so you say you spend a lot of time trudging through Southeast Asia looking yes. for these guys. You, you spend quite a lot of time there yep. off and on. Yep. And... There are some interesting stories that come out of these these trips, I imagine. But what what is a typical day in the field when you're searching and doing behavioural experiments with these guys? Well, the the searching days were very different to the behavioural experiment days. The searching days were just going for very very long walks through the rainforest, getting very excited every time you see a flower, and then walking up and going, "Oh no, it's just a flower. It's not a mantis." <laughs> they tricked you as well. <laughs> Well, in my whole, well, we'll cut to the, the chase. In my whole PhD, I only ever find one orchid mantis in oh, the wild. wild. Yeah. Wow. So I that's kind of high rare there. But I had it tough. <laughs> <laughs> There's an old story that, so one of the very, very early explorers that first wrote about orchid mantises is a guy called Nelson Annandale, who retold a story that was told to him by some of the locals there and apparently the locals in Malaysia told him that you know, there's a legend about these animals you only ever get to see one in your lifetime now I've seen lots of them but they're all captive bred and, and ones in captivity so if, if they're just talking about wild uh, occurrences with orchid mantises maybe that's maybe, maybe I've got my one and that's, that's you, it you peaked early <laughs> That I don't know, that was pretty far into my PhD. I could have picked a lot earlier. That would have been nice. Yes. So did you um so you actually had a you had a BBC crew come out to yeah. film some of your research out yeah. there. So like I guess knowing how rare these guys are, they stand around doing a whole lot of nothing a lot of the time too. So <laughs> was it you know, how how certain were you that you could get these these critters to perform for the camera when you had sort of a, a finite time in which this crew could be there filming what was that like well by that stage i'd been working on them for about four years so i'd, I'd figured out that finding them in the wild wasn't going to happen and filming in the wild wasn't going to happen and so it was really a just sort of perfect timing when the bbc contacted me i was actually in i was uh, doing a fellowship in singapore and was going back and forth between there and malaysia so i was able to scope out good filming spots and opportunities for them and were able to get uh, some local breeders that had them in captivity and uh, use them for the filming. We still filmed them in, you know, in the wild. We got these captive animals and brought them out into a, their natural habitat and observed their natural behavior. Once you've got them there, getting them to behave is actually kind of easy because, as I mentioned before, what they do is they... Are, are so attractive and so flower-like that bees will actually fly right towards them thinking it's a flower and get eaten. Turns out they're stupidly attractive to bees. We were sort of measuring the hourly rate uh, at which bees would visit them and you're getting close to maybe 20, 30 bees 
an hour. Wow. They're that attractive. So if you can get them and if you have uh, a good field site, which I had at the time, it's really just putting them out and sitting and waiting. And it's, we, we hadn't, we were very lucky the week we did the BBC segment because we had amazing behavior and an amazing crew, really lucky with the weather. Everything came together to, to make that a success. So I'm glad that happened. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So um, you, you also, we'll get, we'll get back to research stuff in a minute, but I also want to talk about your, your creative side because yes. anyone that's listened to your podcast and listened to you talk to other people, this <laughs> comes as a recurring theme is, you know, creativity and, and how you've, you know, science is, is a very creative undertaking. Mm. Um, but you also make things, you're a yes. maker. And even looking around your lounge room right now, there's <laughs> a lot of things all over the place that you've made and it's very, very cool. But um, how did you bring that creativity into your research, do you think? Because you've done a lot of making yeah. things. As, as part of your, your actual research work? Yeah. Or did you kind of pick this job because you were able to do that sort of thing as well? What, what kind of... Tell me more about this. <laughs> I don't think I... I definitely didn't pick the job because of that aspect. <laughs> if anything, I did the opposite. Because so. <laughs> you so, were, you know, a budding rock star in high school. Coming yeah. Up, you know, so back painting. in the high school, I almost failed biology. I think my HSC mark for biology was 51%, something like that. I really didn't, I just didn't get it, and I, and I didn't really care about it. Well, no, I cared about it. I always always had an interest in you know, natural history and animals and things like that, but the science side of it I never quite grasped. My thing in school was always the creative stuff. It was you know, music or visual design or things like that. And at the end of uh, year 12, my HSC preferences, top three, the first one was music, second one was uh, film, and the third one was mechatronic engineering. And that's simply because I had a book about the making of Jurassic Park, and it said the big robot dinosaurs were made by mechatronic engineers. (laughs) And that's what I thought mechatronic engineers did. So, <laughs> and then, I don't know, something happened around the end of school and I just thought, you know what, this is the time when I feel like I should be making sensible life choices that set me up for the rest of my life. I don't want to be set up to be a, a struggling artist for the rest of my life. I can do that as a hobby. I'm going to get a proper stable job. And so I got a science degree, which in hindsight is <laughs> is isn't a logical thing. connection, but <laughs> that's what happened. And so it wasn't until I started university, which is a totally different environment to school, and and the way they taught science there was totally different. And that's when I finally went, oh wow, this is really interesting. I can see myself doing this for a job. Then going into uh, being an actual research scientist and working in the field of behavioral ecology, really that was just because, you know, I made friends in that particular lab and we all got along well and opportunities came up and I, I rolled with it. Um, 
the only time that then the sort of creative and making side of things came into it was when you have to come up with solutions to problems on your own. You know, when you're a scientist, you're given a particular question or a phenomenon you need to understand. How you go about that is really up to you and your own strengths and your own inspiration. And just without realizing it, you know, I found myself coming up with solutions that involved making stuff and building and painting and all that sort of thing. And then it's only in hindsight you look at it and go, oh, yeah, I guess <laughs> there's probably a reason that I came up with these solutions. <laughs> it's probably because that's the way I think and that's the way I approach things. Naturally drawn to it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I think it started even during my master's when I was having to rear massive uh, populations of praying mantises in the lab that... And uh, nobody had ever really done before. We hadn't figured out good ways of keeping them alive. And I just went nuts building all sorts of different enclosures until I stumbled across one that seemed to work and I could rear them up in good numbers and they're easy to maintain. And really that was kind of the most memorable part of my master's was that bit where I got to make stuff. <laughs> I got to design stuff. The same thing happened with my PhD. You know, it was meant to be a project all about... You're sampling orchid mantises all across Southeast Asia, and I was going to do phylogenies of their biogeography across the region and all these behavioral experiments and all that kind of stuff. In the end, lots of my project came down to making plasticine mantises and manipulating them and showing them to pollinators and seeing how pollinators respond. And, and from then on, I've made plasticine frogs and grasshoppers and all sorts of stuff in my role as a scientist. And nobody's had a problem with it yet, so I'm, I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> it seems to work. <laughs> it seems like, you know, field-based science, and I mean science generally, you know, you, you, you set out to, to answer a question or, or, you know, solve a problem or something like that. But it's also a massive lesson in improvisation and flexibility because, I mean, I can imagine you didn't expect to only find one orchid mantis doing yes. a PhD in the wild. <laughs> so you had to come up with other ways... Yeah. doing that like I my project when I went out to the desert changed as soon as I arrived in the desert after months of planning everything went out the window and yeah. it was a whole new experience <laughs> for someone who likes to have a very structured plan it was a big learning curve for me but <laughs> how how do you did you think that adversity made you more sort of bring that that creativity into your project a bit more or was that sort of had you planned to use the models or do you, do you find having things kind of have, having the rug pulled out from under you has actually had made you have to be a bit more yeah. improvisational? Definitely. Yeah. I don't know if that was a thing early on in my career as a scientist. It's definitely something now that I embrace. I, I almost don't like to overplan things because I know, as you said, as soon as you get out into the field or into the lab, Things are going to change, and if you're too attached to that original plan, you're just going to go around in circles and nothing is ever going to work. Mm. So I tend to leave a lot of, a lot of room for, for maneuverability. Unfortunately, that kind of comes off to other people as a bit of, ah, she'll be right, type of attitude <laughs> when we're going off into the field and doing you know, very hard logistical things. So <laughs> I have to sort of reel it in a bit and, and make sure I do have a very stringent plan, but I'm ready to drop it at any time and, and go with what works. And I think 
it's a good uh, skill to have. I also think it makes for really good science and art. You know, <laughs> absolutely. I think you're right. Like if you if you have a very direct view of where you want to head with it, you can actually close yourself off to other mm. opportunities or yeah. other. You might not notice things that you know. You might not go off on a tangent that could be the main finding of a of a project or yeah. something like that. That can certainly change your trajectory, I imagine. Well, yeah, the, well, the I think it was the last paper of my PhD was looking at uh, the predation success of orchid mantises, where f- the density of flowers differed. So it turns out if you put it sounds kind of obvious now in hindsight. If you put a praying mantis where there's lots of flowers, they catch lots of bees because there's lots of pollinators in that area. Mm-hmm. If you put them in an area where there's not many flowers, uh, they don't catch a lot of bees. You know, scientifically, that's interesting because it sort of gets into the head of what's what's going on in a bee's head. You know, if a bee has, if a bee sees an orchid mantis, but there are nearby flowers that it can refer to. Is it going to go towards the orchid mantis or is it going to avoid them? Same thing, if you have a bee that sees an orchid mantis in isolation, is it more likely to go to it because there's nothing else there mm-hmm. or will it avoid it? It turns out the more flowers that are around, the more likely that bees are going to go towards the orchid mantis just because the bees are there. And this is actually a thing called the, the magnet effect in pollination ecology. Anyway, <laughs> that whole... Uh, experiment and that whole aspect of the research came about simply because we had time to kill at the field station <laughs> on one of our field trips we'd been very successful with the experiments we had planned we had more time to do more experiments had nothing but uh, orchid mantises and the flowers at the field station so what we could come up with on the spot was essentially this looking at how you know, the density of flowers around the orchid mantis affects their predation success and that in itself was a whole new paper that added a whole new aspect to our understanding of them and yeah just being open to those possibilities and just just winging it can can work a lot of the time and but you can't you can't always expect it to work it's that sort of sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't you gotta be okay with that yeah totally it's good life life lessons (laughs) (laughs) so you you did your PhD at Macquarie. Yeah. You taught there for a while, but mm-hmm. you you also got out of research for a while. Yes. Now, can you tell me a bit about that journey and how you know you did quite you did a few different things. You tried out being a travel agent. You <laughs> you volunteered at the zoo. You worked at the Australian Museum, and you worked for a technology. Code club company. Well, lots of those things never uh, <laughs> came to fruition, thank God. But, <laughs> but you know, how, what, what led you to leave in the first place? And yeah. what do you think you got out of, of those experiences you had while you, before, you, before you came full circle back into research, which we'll get to in a minute as well? Well, as, as listeners to the podcast know by now, uh, research in academia is a pretty tough field to be in uh, it's pretty competitive the uh, positions are sort of few and far between and not the most uh, reliable source of income sometimes and that's particularly the case early on in your career you know 
when you finished your PhD, you're seen as an early career researcher, despite the fact you've probably been in the field for, I don't know, close to a decade for some people. <laughs> and uh, you, uh, you know, I say to a lot of people, once you finish your PhD, you're essentially a freelance scientist. You have to go where the work is. You know, if a job comes up for two months making plasticine frogs, you go for it because that, that's what's available at the time. But all this time that you're jumping between these freelance gigs, you have in your head that you have to be fighting for that next big fellowship and you have to be strategic about what's going to look good on your CV that will make you more competitive for grants and get that almighty full-time permanent position that everyone talks about. The truth of the matter is you've you're just you just got to go book day by day and make sure you don't die, that sort of thing. <laughs> and it was that, that struggle, really, that that really drove me away from it. It's, it takes it out of you. you. You put so much in to this field and into this career and then are just sort of put out into the wide world where you're just fending for yourself and you're, you're, you're constantly getting rejected, essentially, you know, you're constantly applying for fellowships that you're not going to get. You're constantly applying for grants you're not going to get. You're constantly doing experiments that either fail or don't give you the results you expected. So you have to realize you don't understand what you're talking about in the first place. It's, it's a very disheartening sort of time of your career. And you know, that's when I started going, you know what, I just... This isn't what I wanted to do when I was in high school. Maybe it's, this is a sign. Maybe I'm in the wrong uh, career path. Maybe I'm just not competitive enough for this. And really for a whole lot of essentially mental health reasons, I just kind of said, you know what, I've got to get out of this. I've got to do something else. And so, you know, in hindsight, I'd done okay. Like I hadn't been out of work for a day it was always very stressful because I never knew at the time where my next paycheck was coming from. But through all that hard work and stubbornness, I was pretty stable. But in the end, I just sort of cracked and said, all right, I'm, you know, I'm not going to take this next you know, two-month contract. I'm just going to go look for something else elsewhere. And at that stage, I really had nothing to go to. And that's when I just started applying for things left of field all over the place. So... You know, I applied to volunteer at the zoo. It turns out volunteering at Taronga Zoo is actually a really competitive process. Out of academia. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a whole interview as your selection process to volunteer at the zoo. And I went through all that and got accepted. And I was about to start in the marine mammal section at Taronga Zoo. And then I had also... Uh, applied for a job as a travel agent for for flight center because I thought you know what you know, regular desk job at nine to five security turns out it's not that it's all sales and commission based and absolute <laughs> nonsense but I had the job interview got offered the job I also had <laughs> done a volunteer internship uh, at Australian Geographic for a month as a science writer which was great so all of these things were all happening at once. But just at that same time, a job came up at the Australian Museum and their science communication team. And I had to then ring up the zoo and tell them that I couldn't come in and volunteer. Thankfully, I had to ring up and say to Flight Center and say, no, thanks. 
I've got a job elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, started uh, working in uh, events management, essentially, at the Australian Museum, run, helping run their science festivals and school outreach programs and things. And that simply came about because, again, I contacted them out of the blue, said, you know, I have a background in science and done lots of science teaching. I'm really interested in uh, working at the museum. I want to get some experience. Can I come and volunteer? So I came in and volunteered for a couple of days and I just happened to be there at the right place in the right time when they had uh, some extra money lying around to hire someone to help organize their events. And so I did that for about eight months, I think. And then the money for that position fell through. So again, I had nothing to go to. Yep. And again, it was really bizarre. It was a very uh, fortuitous circumstance that while I was working at the museum, I'd made connections with people that had come to do some displays at the museum from a company called Code Club. And it was literally the day that I was cleaning up my desk at the museum, sitting there, <laughs> deleting all my files from the computer or whatever. My office phone rang. There was nobody else there. It wasn't my office phone anymore, but I just thought, oh, whatever, I'll just answer it and see what they want. It was someone from Code Club ringing me up to offer me a job. <laughs> you personally? <laughs> yes. And they did, They yeah, had met me while we were at the museum. They liked the cut of my jib or whatever. <laughs> They had an opportunity, and they, they just wanted to know if I'd be interested in working for them. What are the odds of that? I, <laughs> I don't even want to think it's, about it. I know. I, it's something <laughs> I think about all the time, and it stirs me up into a crazy, anxious mess. Not, not really, but you know, you get what I mean. Because you, you know, your life can really change in a moment, right? Yeah. Just, just having, feeling not so great about you know, not having this job anymore and... Oh, what are the odds of the last day you were going to be there getting that call? I just think about, you know, I, I never would have continued into research if it wasn't for just a chance meeting with somebody who needed a volunteer to yeah. come on a trip to catch lizards with them. Like, yeah. it, if, if that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have taken that whole path. I, I don't know where I'd be right now. And, and yeah. the idea that that can change so... I mean, there, there are so many examples of that. I, going all the way back to high school, when I decided I wasn't going to be a mechatronic engineer, I was, you know, whinging to all my friends, I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm just going to be homeless, you know, I don't know what to do with my life. Isn't that really, like, and... artistic? Um, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I was meant to be a struggling artist. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can credit Nicole Brogeltoft, <laughs> I went to high school with, just said... To me, you know, aren't you all into like fish and stuff or something? <laughs> Why don't you just do be a marine biologist? And it was literally that that one comment, that one conversation that made me go looking through the university's admission guide and find this marine biology degree at Macquarie University. And yeah, and, and went into that. Yeah, wow. And wanted to become a marine biologist, and that sent me down this this spiral of everything, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Really? <laughs> and so you started at Code Club and that was a really interesting environment to be in because there was lots happening, lots of, mm. you know, I'll let you tell the story, but it was a different <laughs> network of people, different world, wasn't it? Yeah, so they're a, it's in the not-for-profit sector 
first of all, which I had never worked in before. I had no idea how it all works. Like, you know, the first couple of weeks of my job, I sat there going, so who's actually paying us to do this stuff? And they say, no one. And I go, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so essentially what Code Club do is they raise funds and get donations to bring uh, computer coding skills out uh, to school kids. And they have a huge focus on bringing it out to low SES areas or regional areas. Essentially with the goal to make these skills equally available to everyone. You know, if we look at the world we live in or the world we're going to be living in the future, programming skills and computer literacy is where lots of the opportunities and jobs are going to come from. Some very clever people realized that opportunities to learn their skills were very heavily skewed towards particular classes with people. And they said, all right, well, we don't want a class system around this. Let's promote these skills and make these opportunities available to everyone. So my job there for a while was as a, their, their outreach manager. So I was taking these things on the road and running little uh, sort of regional coding days and going along to regional science festivals and you know, getting word out there that Code Club is a thing and bringing it out to communities and all that sort of stuff. So it was very, very... Uh, it was challenging because... It was this whole new, uh, essentially a whole new value system for me. You know, whenever you are doing science, you're taught or you're instilled with values about publications and citations and grant income and uh, or, or data. Essentially, they're they're the currencies you work with. With here, it was just trying to figure out what the engagement of your events were or what the social impact of the work you did was. And they were sort of currencies that I didn't really understand at the time. It was also a very different environment to work in because it was kind of in the digital startup space. You know, Code Club shared offices at the time with a uh, almost like a startup incubator sort of place. So there was all these different entrepreneurial sorts all wandering around and chatting with me and things. And that was a really interesting place uh, to do work and see how other people live and essentially just get out of the academic bubble you, you, you asked before what you know, this experience away from science gave me and it was that sort of stuff seeing that what I'd been taught for the past eight years or whatever that you know, the only valuable contribution you can make to say to society is is the data you collect getting out of that and realizing oh no there's there's other ways you can do things. <laughs> there's other good things you can do for the world there are other ways that you can can explore and do things that have never been done before, such as you know, having your own digital startup or developing a new product, all that sort of stuff. It was a good, good way to recalibrate myself and re reassess what I was doing and where I was going. There were a lot of really interesting startups around at the, at the time too yeah. that, that involved communicating science or getting kids involved with sciences. Cube Rider, yeah. for example, and, and things like that. Yeah. I guess it's an interesting space to, because you, you're obviously a science communicator mm. now as well. And I mean, you've always been a good science communicator. You lectured and taught at uni and things like that. But it seems like since that time, you've sort of done a lot more of the actual science communication, communication to the public. You've started mm. in situ science and you host science in the club here in Armadale. <laughs> and so how, how do you think that experience might have helped 
and as you as you moved out of Code Club again back into research, mm. how has that sort of, I guess, changed that trajectory a little bit? And I mean, it gave me uh, lots of experience doing different forms of science communication. You know, I'd always done lots of lecturing and conference talks, and I don't know, doing little radio spots or whatever. Your regular scientific ways of communicating uh, your findings then changing fields and working for science communication at the Australian Museum or doing events for Code Club. You're doing uh, community events, you're doing festivals, you're doing school workshops, really very different things. So it gave me that uh, sort of experience. And then it also got me really thinking about what the point of science communication (laughs) is, really. And how it can be more in line with research. You know, one thing I I really realized as a researcher is that what we do as scientists and why we do science isn't really reflected in run-of-the-mill science communication. You know, when you open your New Scientist magazine, you're reading about these amazing discoveries that have just been made and... Uh, new planets that have been found or new disease treatments that have been discovered, really high-impact stuff. You're not hearing about all the little things that build up the huge breadth of knowledge uh, that allow us to make amazing discoveries. You're also not hearing about the 20 years of work that went up to leading to that discovery that was summarized in a half-page article type of thing. And I think that those stories are just as interesting and just as important and, and need to be told. It's probably no surprise then that that's kind of you know, a recurring theme in these podcasts. That's what I was going to say. Like, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, a big thing really in engaging people, right, is making them feel a part of it and, mm. and um, you know, bringing your podcast to people is showing them what, you know, scientists are not just people in white lab coats you know, waggling around pipettes mm. or blowing things up. They they are real people with very different interests beyond what they do. Mm. And um, I guess contextualising it for the public also, I think, makes that yeah. interesting to them, right? And, and citizen science is a big part of that. And you've got a, um, an interest in that as well. You're currently doing a project with <laughs> a local regional Thursday, school. Thursday, I'm going out to Dundarabin Public School. This is part of a science communication award. Yeah, so me and a couple of other uh, scientists that are part of the Ecological Society of Australia are all going out to schools throughout New South Wales and talking to kids about science and how to do it and getting them to run through a little experiment with us. And all that data that the kids collect are actually going to be compiled and form the basis of an actual scientific research study. So the scientists that are doing this research are 10-year-old kids, essentially. So they're not just learning about science. They they are scientists, really. Yeah. (laughs) That's such a huge thing for them, too, I imagine. That's the sort of thing that could change a kid's outlook. I hope they get it. I hope they... They (laughs) But just, you know, the, the... Instead of being sort of fed science stories, yeah. they're seeing how the whole process yeah. goes from A to B and that they can do it. Any any person 
that has a desire to can can be a scientist right yeah and the thing that i'm hoping to get across to them is that science is not for savants it's not for ridiculously smart cluey people science i think can be reduced down to counting if you can count you can do science (laughs) (laughs) elaborate (laughs) well you know essentially everything can be reduced down to being able to count you know the experiments i did for my phd again it was counting how many bees came to a flower within a particular amount of time You know, the experiments that I'm doing with these school kids is counting how many birds' nests have been attacked by predators. Even if you're, you know, shooting lasers out into space, you're counting the number of blips that come back. (laughs) It gets more complicated because then you have to interpret those blips and uh, think about what they mean and what that actually tells you about what the laser is intercepting. But essentially it just sort of comes down to that. (laughs) <laughs> and and the, the <laughs> it's really just about understanding what those those numbers mean, and so hopefully I can break down that idea of it being some in, impenetrable field and something that's really really hard to understand because it's not it's just is this number bigger than that number is this number different to that number if so what does that mean yeah that's a good point <laughs> I guess even I'm just trying to relate it to genetics but I guess even Counting the number of genes shared by different individuals exactly. in the different populations, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that. May I use that? I'm going to... Yep, do it. Let's go. <laughs> Make it into a t-shirt. Science is just counting. should do a TED Talk on that or something. Someone asked me to do a TED Talk. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> what about counting? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, so what are you doing? What are you doing now? You've, um, since... Since Curry Club and, yeah. and all of that, you, you went back to research about a, two years ago? Yeah, pretty much. It was about two years ago. An opportunity came out of the blue. My old PhD supervisor rang me up and just said, we've got a position for you here if you want it. And it was, uh, you know, she made me an offer I couldn't refuse, essentially. <laughs> Because it wasn't, you know, the funny money positions I was on before. It was a proper postdoc salary. It had, you know, several years security with it. Uh, which was, even then, it was something I didn't have at Code Club in the Australian Museum. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, you know, emotionally I was in a much better place by then. Financially I was in a better place. I'd, I'd had some time to step away from science and reflect on things, and I thought, you know what, let's let's give this a second chance. Let's see how this whole research thing goes. And yeah, I went back to being a, a researcher, and I was, went back to work at Macquarie University studying spiders and praying mantises again. Did you find it hard to get, to get back into Because I know a big fear of a lot of people that want to try something different out of science. They get told, you know, if you're out of, out of it for six months to a year, you're not coming back because mm. you, your publications fall behind and all that sort of stuff. So did you find it hard to make that transition back in? No. Uh, making the transition out was hard and getting my head out of the science space was hard. You know, because I'd been in research for so long by that stage and because it's such a 
insular focused field it really uh influences like i said your value systems and the way you perceive the world so even when i was working outside of research i was almost sort of keeping one eye on what other researchers were doing mm-hmm. you know being at the Australian museum there were always other researchers around me and i would always find myself getting into conversations with them and finding that i had a lot more to talk about to them than i did the people working in you know marketing and the people that I was supposed to be working with at the museum and all my friendship groups where they were all still researchers <laughs> and scientists so in a way you know I left professionally but I was, I was still kind of up to speed with what was going on yeah. and still knew how the game worked yeah. a little bit so getting back into it was relatively easying sort of getting back into the swing of things was easy what was difficult though is the effect that that time away from research has had on you know, your track record and people talk about this you know when they're thinking about say having kids and things like that once you're in research you're expected to keep on getting grants keep on publishing papers if you do something like go on maternity leave you're not going to be able to write papers you're not going to be able to apply for grants and that affects your output and when you plot these things on a resume it's almost like this big black hole of nothing in there mm. now that makes total sense on the surface of it of course you know you weren't working at that time of course you're not going to have output at that time given that this is a, such a competitive field though it actually has an impact on your success getting grants in the future succeeding jobs in the future it shouldn't morally and ethically but it it does <laughs> and it's a big problem i was only out of the field for i think it was about 16 months all up so over a year and now to and a bit years later i'm still behind where people think i should be in terms of the grant income i've got coming in in terms of the progress of the projects i'm working on the papers i've published so far and i can say to people yep i've had this career what we call a career interruption i was not doing research at these times but i think at a at a deep psychological level the the hardcore buffons and researchers the people that really have only ever worked in academia and don't think that anything outside of academia is a valuable way to spend your time are going to look at that and go oh, i'm not sure about this guy <laughs> <laughs> Where do his priorities lie? <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> But now that you're back in, though, there's you know, you you you've your perspective has changed. I guess priorities have changed a bit too, though. You used you know, you are doing more science communication. Yeah. You you've not your focus isn't entirely research yeah. anymore. And that's okay. You're doing well, pretty well where you are. One of the things I also thought about a lot when I was working in science communication was how disconnected these two fields are. And when I'm in a when I'm in a grumpy mood, I kind of look at science communicators as kind of like parasites. What? For for scientists sometimes. Well, because when they're talking about uh, groundbreaking research that happens 
the scientists and the research that they do are seen as content. Mm. And you get down to that sort of marketing journalism speak that, you know, we need something to put in this newspaper. We need something to put in a tweet. Let's look to the scientists for content. And, you know, obviously there are people on the total other end of the spectrum talking about it like that. Mm. The marketing bent. Yeah. And I kind of got looking at this and uh, looking at the sort of the big science communicators like, I don't know, say the BBC that came out and did the, the documentary with me or the Discovery Channel or, I don't know, the conversation, things like that. They're, they're wonderful in that they tell the world about what we do. But in lots of ways, uh, what we do as scientists is a product for them. Mm. And I sort of realized that it's a, it's a one-way relationship yeah. You know, we're giving them all this information that they can use to sell DVDs or magazines or get Twitter followers or whatever. The justification that you know, for what they give back is, well, we're giving you exposure, we're giving you impact, that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, the struggling artist in me says, you know what, exposure don't pay the bills. Yeah. Sunny. Sure many <laughs> musicians and painters and <laughs> artists would exactly the same thing yeah and when you're one of these early <laughs> career postdocs and you're really worried about paying the bills you start to feel maybe a little resentful about the fact that your the research you're doing is actually really high profile and is uh, being enjoyed by lots and lots of people mm. but no one's offering to pay you to do it and so it got me thinking about well how can we how can we shake things up a bit surely there's a way where science communicators can fund research and if they can it, hopefully that's a good idea because it's them investing in their product you know mm-hmm. if they want amazing discoveries to be made so they can sell newspapers and magazines invest in it you know help make it happen and that's kind of <laughs> what got me thinking about starting up a science communication outlet of my own <laughs> called in situ science Shameless and plug. <laughs> no. subscribe on itunes leave us a positive review <laughs> but i hope like it came one day i want to find a way to use in situ science to actually support scientists mm. and to fund research and actually make it a bit more of a two-way uh, connection and collaboration I think it's with a scientists really, and science communicators. That's a really nice philosophy. And I think because, you know, some, uh, something that I won't say I've noticed lately is a big push generally for, you know, a lot of funding into research going into, you know, industry and things that have really obvious outcomes at mm. the end. And there's less funding available and less, I guess, publicity around for um the natural history type yeah. sciences, pure science, um, science uh, research into evolution and why things have evolved the yeah. way they have and things like that. And and I think a large part of what you do as well is is or, and want to support is that sort of science for science sake, right? And, yeah, and it's um, hard to fund quest for knowledge as opposed to finding the next best metal coating for a <laughs> streetlight sort of. 
first thing I looked at when I looked out the window. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and people would kind of roll their eyes at it and go, well, you know, there's no uh, outcome of that. There's no product at the end. You know, we've got to give money to medical research because that we can develop drugs that can be sold or, you know, material science because they can develop a polymer that can be used to make street lamps or whatever. People look at exploration and discovery and go, oh, well, that's... You know, that's a luxury. That's not a product. But we wouldn't have so many amazing things if it wasn't for... But even then, that. at a more immediate <laughs> level, it is a product. Mm. Just what we were talking about before. Every time a new dinosaur species is discovered, there's magazines getting sold. There's, <laughs> you know, every time we find a new type of primate, there's a documentary being made. You know, people like natural history. People like exploration. It is an immediate product because it's something that people want to know about, people want to read about, people want to escape into that world and into those possibilities through the things we're talking about, through podcasts, through (laughs) documentaries, through science communication. So yeah, there is a product to be made out of natural history. Absolutely. And so hopefully that's something that I can start making happen. (laughs) Yes. And you've been given the opportunity to to pilot something yes. with this. That... So, in situ science, I haven't spoken about this on the podcast before. Are you allowed to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> we are starting to raise money for scientists. So, at the moment, we're partnering with the University of New England to actually offer research grants uh, to postgraduate research students. So we're going to be giving out awards later on this year or uh, giving out research grants to uh, research scientists. And as a condition of the, accepting that award, Institute Science will go out and make little short films about the research that they're doing. And in that way, we are investing in our product, which is science communication, by helping make it happen and so we're doing a pilot study to see how this... Uh, I guess I couldn't really call it a pilot study. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> just a pilot. We're a doing pilot a trial <laughs> to see how it works. And then we're going to start taking this to new avenues and look for new ways of funding research. So if people are interested in, in <laughs> donating or, or partnering with In-Situ Science, this is something we're going to be pushing in the near future. I think it's a really fantastic thing you're doing, isn't it? It's awesome. So do I. We'll see how it works. Does everyone else at the other end of the microphone agree? Well, the proof will be in our puddings. (laughs) uh... Here we go with the mixed metaphors. Is this where this is heading? Because that's something I wanted to ask you about. That's something you're kind of known for, James O'Hanlon. Really? My mixed metaphors? Well, amongst some of us, yes. (laughs) I was going to ask you your top three. (laughs) <laughs> top three mi- mixed metaphors <laughs> um, you're immune to your, your dad jokes and your puns and your mixed metaphors yeah I just thought we could go down that road I like uh, put the, the hats on the other foot that's a good one uh, uh, I like uh, uh, let sleeping dogs lie in a basket of chicken eggs uh, no that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did want to ask you about, though, is a while ago you started up a hashtag called Strange Things for Science. Yeah. One of my greatest contributions to science I so truly far believe is it is. A hashtag. 
<laughs> it is it is one of those great things where anyone who's done science, you know, you it's it's not all, you know, shiny new equipment all the time and we some often have to um what's the word? Uh improvise with yeah. what little we have. I I my contribution to strange things for science was a when I went out into the field to catch lizards, we were catching them in little um, metal box traps and we couldn't use things like peanut butter and, and smelly stuff that you'd often use as bait mm. in there because there's so many ants in the desert um, yeah. that any lizard captured in there with the food would get swarmed by ants and couldn't have that. So I opted for something a little less smelly, which was tinned peas and corn. Mm-hmm. And every few months when I'd go in come back to Alice Springs to get uh, to get supplies, I would have to buy out all of the tin peas and corn in Alice Springs. I'd go to every single supermarket, the Coles and the Woolworths and the little corner stores and buy every can they had. And I actually built up a bit of a reputation <laughs> inadvertently whenever I'd go to Monty's, the, the local pub or the Botanic Gardens for breakfast. Um, I got called Lizard Lady by people there because I felt like I had to explain why I was catching, um, why I was buying millions of cans of yeah. peas and corn. <laughs> but what, what, what are some of your strange things for science or some of the, your favorites that you've seen on the hashtag even? Well, Let's go with some of yours first. My, my first, the first one that inspired the hashtag is when I got 4,000 golf tees delivered to my house. <laughs> <laughs> turns out that's a thing you can buy on eBay. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is when I was doing my plasticine frog research. I needed little platforms to put the plasticine frogs out in the field. And I thought golf tees would be, would work. Mm. And I just ordered them and it didn't really dawn on me that that was a weird thing until they turned up in a crate at my house. And I decided to tweet out a little picture of it with the hashtag strange things for science and ask everyone else what they've done for science. (laughs) (laughs) And it got me thinking, yeah, about all the times I went to Bunnings, you know, to buy particular, uh, grade of mesh of fly screen and that they wouldn't have and so i go asking someone and they go all right what size door is it for and i'd have to go well it's not actually for a door <laughs> <laughs> and then i have to explain to them for whatever crazy maze or thing that i was building or you know whatever crazy adhesive i needed and they would go what are you adhering it to and you'd have to say well locusts you know? <laughs> <laughs> or something stupid like that and yeah, I made you realize, I made me realize the fact that because as scientists, we do things that have never been done before, you need to come up with solutions that nobody's ever come up with. You know, you can't just you know, walk into Kmart and go, give me a, a Y maze for a hermit crab behavior study. You got to you know, design and build that from scratch. That's right. And so I think the one, uh, I think the most memorable strange things for science uh, wasn't memorable enough for me to remember who tweeted it, but <laughs> their one was driving around uh, region Australia asking pharmacists if they had any unlubricated condoms because <laughs> <laughs> they needed to put trackers on the back of platypus and they're very, very watertight, but they couldn't be lubricated or else the glue wouldn't stick to them. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it turns out little chambers waterproof chambers to glue on the back of platypus aren't a product that companies sell so you have to make them (laughs) that's awesome 
I guess there also has to be a shout out to the to the housemates and the partners and the families of, of people who have to bring samples home and yeah. that sort of thing. I remember my poor mother opening the the freezer of our in our kitchen to about 150 tubes of lizard tails. And <laughs> my right. my sister wanting me to come and meet her when I got off the plane from from somewhere else, and I was like, "Oh, sorry, I can't. I've got a bag full of like." 50 butterflies, i got to get them home and <laughs> into, into cups and things yeah. like that. Just... My, my office partner is always very apologetic of the 20 moving boxes full of cow manure <laughs> that fill up half of the office. <laughs> Smell hasn't seeped out yet, but I've promised her I'll let her know if I ever smell it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that's that's about it from from me and yeah. um do you have any little pearls of wisdom you want to leave with the listeners before we say good night uh, you know it's it's nice to be important it's more important to be nice oh, uh, sweet never smile at a crocodile <laughs> what else <laughs> uh yeah thanks thanks so much for coming on <laughs> thanks for having me james <laughs> well, no worries. Uh, We'll see you next time. I'll let you do the, the outro. You don't want to refer people to the, the Twitter? and um, the... Oh, <laughs> if you, insituscience.com yeah. is their website. Yeah. At insituscience. Is on the, social media. On social media. I'm at Jam O'Hanlon on Twitter. I'm sorry, you should uh, totally do this. I've... <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually interview people. James O'Hanlon research.wordpress.com. <laughs> jamesohanlon.com turns out is taken really the guy that's sitting on it won't give it up really I've, I've is his name to... james o'hanlon yeah oh turns out it's a common name yeah irish catholics they did you breed know a lot. i found another siobhan Dennison on facebook oh and well she found me <laughs> and it turned out yeah siobhan Dennison, same spelling everything um, she lived in Perth, which is where all my mother's family is. And the day she got in touch with me, she had been into my parent, uh, my auntie and uncle's electronics store, and they had made a comment on the fact that she had the same name as me, and that's how it came about. Well, you got to register SiobhanDennison dot com before she. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, the guy sitting at JamesOhanlon dot com won't give it up. He's not using Check. it. No. Oh. That's, that's assuming that I'm famous enough to require James Ehrenland. <laughs> well, I wish you all the very best in that endeavor, James Ehrenland. Yep. Fame, that's what science is all about. Maybe we can get that name trending and, and there can be a, I don't know, a campaign to give, give James No, there is a, uh, when you Google James Ehrenland, the one person I'm competing with is a bodybuilder on YouTube. Oh, that's hilarious. So I just gotta, I gotta hit the gym and I'd gun him and game. yeah, get rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably end the podcast. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much for sharing your stories with us. No worries. And yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time on <laughs> on City Science Podcast. Good job. Thank you. <laughs>
This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Listener.